My name's Tara Brooke Watkins. I am the head of the soon-to-be Theater for Social Justice program here at Eastern Nazarene College. And I am really pleased today to be able to present an excerpt from the play, The Bible Women's Project. To give you a bit of history about this play, for those of you who have not heard about it, in 2014, I invited any woman who was a part of the Eastern Nazarene College campus to join me in looking at stories of women in the Bible. We met once a week and we read the stories straight from scripture and we asked questions about those women's lives in a way that related to our own personal lives. Through this process, these women grew closer to God and closer to one another and we discovered that our stories are in these Bible women's stories. They're incredibly relatable. And then we made a play that tried to bring all these stories to life, both the Bible women's stories and our true personal stories. The excerpt you're about to see takes place at the end of the play. And I want to reiterate that everything you will hear is true. These are true stories of students and alums from Eastern Nazarene College, but not every story that you will hear is being told by the woman who originally shared it. Please enjoy the Bible Women's Project. Jesus' genealogy is traced from Sarah, who didn't have enough faith, to Tamar, who had to lie and pretend to be a prostitute to get pregnant, to Rahab, a prostitute who protected men who were not from her own country, to Ruth, a foreigner in a foreign land, to Bathsheba, just a woman. From the beginning of his life, Jesus revealed his true identity to women, from Anna, who announced his presence as the Messiah, to the woman at the well who had many husbands. I'm sorry, can we stop for a second? I know, it's, it's not now when. I have always related with the Samaritan woman at the well. I feel like I have to hide and I only find Jesus when I'm alone. I mean, she went out to the well to get water in the middle of the day because that's when no one was going to be there. People went out to get water in the cool of the morning and the evening and maybe she just didn't want to deal with people looking at her and staring and the whispers. <laughs> And I'm stalling. This is really hard. Okay, I'm just gonna say it. I am um, I am happy. And I feel pretty secure in myself and being happy. But I don't feel loved by the church. And I feel like Jesus made it pretty clear by the way that he lived and especially by the way that he died that his love extends to everyone. And there aren't supposed to be rules for who he loves. And it says in the Bible in John, right after Jesus gives his new commandment to love one another, by this shall all men know you are my disciples that you love one another. And then if it's supposed to be through that love that people come to know Christ, how are we offering that opportunity for happy people? 
And I've looked for churches who would accept me. No questions asked. And I've left churches, churches that I loved, because as soon as someone found out, the whispers start, and soon I'm the only one sitting in my pew. Or, or sometimes the church will say they accept me, but the people don't agree, and then they'll use me as an opportunity to prove that they don't agree, or, or they go out of their way to make me feel welcome, but then as soon as I want to get involved in some way other than just sitting in the congregation, I'm told I can't really participate. Do you think if you don't let me stand up in front of people, you can pretend I don't exist? I'm here. I exist. And I just want to meet my thirst when the rest of the world does. I've been accused of being happy. Listen to me, accused. I don't have language for it except in the negative. I'm single, and I don't fit your stereotypical image of a female, so people try to figure out what's really going on. Then I get ostracized once they've made it up in their mind that I'm happy. Well, what do women do who are looking but can't find anyone? Accusations start. Accusations that wouldn't exist if the church hadn't made it an issue of contempt. Instead, the fact that being happy is so unacceptable means that many women rush into marriage with someone who may not be right simply because they're afraid of the rumors. So when I graduated college, I needed a roommate. So I found this guy to room with, but of course that was giving off the appearance of sin. So I kicked him out and I found a woman to share my apartment with. It wasn't very long before the rumors started. It seems like if you're a woman in the church who is strong, outspoken, and independent, or just single, you run the risk of the most feared label out there. Lesbian. Well, and I just feel like until Christians actually do what Jesus did, sit with us, get to know us, create a safe place for us, how can anyone actually claim to be living up to Christ's standards? Do men go through the same thing, I wonder? I wonder. I wonder. I have sex and I'm not married. <laughs> okay, feels good to get that out there. <laughs> what is your unforgivable sin? And how do you cope with having committed it? Um, you're not alone. <laughs> Safe place. Safe, Safe place. place. Sometimes I use my Christian beliefs in abstinence as a mask for why I won't have sex before I'm married, but I wonder if that's what I really believe or if I've been born with a better body. I don't know. How far is too far? Some people are like, don't kiss, it's a sin. Don't touch, you'll end up having sex. And then others are like, just don't do intercourse, but you can do everything else. Where is the consistency? Can someone just tell me what I'm allowed to do already? I don't mean to go all conservative on you, but I happen to believe in abstinence. Of course. I mean, yes, absolutely. Okay, just wanted to make sure it's a safe place to share the traditional views as well as the liberal ones. Can I say something scary? Yeah, of course. So, growing up in the church and learning about Eve and Bathsheba and even Jezebel, 
I was basically taught that it was my role as a female to avoid tempting men. I mean, I even learned to dress in a certain way so that I'd avoid being tempting, right? And there was this man that I trusted, a married Christian church leader, and he groomed me. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't think I could be someone who a married Christian church leader would find attractive because I worked so hard to not be sexy, right? So I was blindly led down a path of sexual harassment and emotional abuse that lasted for years. When I finally realized what was going on, I felt so used and betrayed, I almost lost who I was. When I finally started telling people what had been going on, they thought I just wanted attention. It's like they took one look at me, right, at my obviously non-attractive self and thought, she must be lying. Mm. Then I think about women who are raped and are judged and blamed because they were dressed too sexy. We lose either way. Can I just say this? The church was my only consistent family growing up. After my parents got a divorce, it was my father who made sure to have us at church every Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday night. And, um, but I understand. I wish the church was more open and honest and had less closed doors because like you, I have also struggled with my sexuality. And the one place where I felt the most loved was the one place where I felt like no one would understand. It's nice to know I have a safe place. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all and all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. say thanks for that powerful <laughs> so the church of Jesus Christ is dealing with issues of human sexuality uh, tough questions you're the generation that is having the conversation and deeply engaged in it and you belong to a church that is scared to death of the same conversation Across the last two or three years of my life, I've been deeply engaged with the Church of the Nazarene in helping to rewrite uh, the section of our denominational manual on human sexuality. Corey McPherson was also a part of that, roughly five or, uh, five or ten of us that, that worked on that together. Uh, at this past summer's gathering of the Church of the Nazarene, by 97% approval vote, the Church of the Nazarene affirmed a very new and different stance 
on human sexuality that is much more open and gracious toward the kind of issues that we heard here. Um, I've written a book that's called Human Sexuality, A Primer for Christians. I actually wrote it for the tr students of Treveca about two years or so ago. Made it an e-book so that it's uh, cheap and accessible. And, uh, uh, and Lynn asked me if in dealing with the beloved community, if I would at least lay what I've called a biblical foundation for talking about human sexuality. Now let me just admit right up front, a lot of the issues that were raised here, I won't get to those, I do get to all those in the book, but I, I want to build a foundation this morning if I could, and I'll, and I'll admit to you, this might sound a little more like a lecture than a sermon, but I think if you'll hang with me, we might get somewhere good. I do not believe that the current discussion about human sexuality will result in a unified church. I also think the oversimplified categories of liberal and conservative are incapable of defining where Christians are and what we might do. But I do believe that the Church of Jesus Christ is the last best hope in a culture of death that we're living in. And I also believe that a beloved community like ENC is the kind of place where these conversations might happen. So here we go. Let's say we're all riding this roller coaster. And like good Christians, we've invited everybody to come on board. We've got our conservative safety belt securely tightened. Our quasi-Pentecostal hands are up in the air. And here we go coasting down the track of culture with its slow climbs, its plummeting drops, its upside-down loops, and its steep curves. And all of a sudden, something happens. We never saw it coming. A wheel comes off our coaster, and it's no longer capable of holding the track. As long as the track is straight, we can coast, but there is a steep curve ahead, one that has the potential to throw us all. So what do we do? Well, some of us lean right, away from the curve, believing that the conservative approach that has taken us through so many a sharp curve, that that will hold us now. Some of us lean left, kind of into the curve believing that a changing world needs a fresh response from God's people. The dividedness of the leaners right and left and the jostling between them cause many who are on our coaster to unbuckle their seatbelts and just jump out before we get to the curb. So, they hope to land somewhere much less divisive than the church. So the right leaners and left leaners go into the curb believing that each is right and the other is wrong. Whichever is in the majority will most likely be the proud owner of a wrecked roller coaster. Is this where the church is in responding to issues of human sexuality? Is this a ride that you would be excited to be on? I'm not. I want some better options than leaning right or left. But here's our problem. For lack of a theology of human sexuality that is biblical cohesive and Wesleyan, we find ourselves needing to repair a missing wheel while hurtling toward a curve that has the potential to derail the church and injure lots of people. We are in desperate need of a biblical theology of human sexuality. What is needed but impossible given this present moment is for us to take the roller coaster off the track, repair it in the shop, test it by some experienced roller coaster theologians, and then put back into service. But we don't have this luxury. Stuff happens all the time, and we can't wait for a theology conference to convene. A same-sex couple shows up at the church wanting to be married. 
a heterosexual couple is living together unmarried. A suicide in the church is rooted in the quiet shame of gender turmoil. A dearly beloved friend requests prayer for his sex change operation. The biological sex of a baby in our church is being debated. We're living on a roller coaster and we never know what lies around the next curve. So here we are right at the curve in that track. And we need to have a conversation about human sexuality. So let's do. Let's just take the coaster off the track for just a few minutes this morning and revisit the biblical narrative of human sexuality. A narrative is nothing more than a way of framing meaning. Let me illustrate to you. The paragraph you're going to see on the screen here, it comes from a teacher named Mike Metzger. Next slide, if you would. There it is. Okay, look at this. Okay, just look at it. Read it, if you would. And then just think about this. Does this make sense to you? I remember the first time I read that, I went, what? Now let me give you one framing word and read it again. The word is kite, kite. Now read it. When we engage our culture in conversations about human sexuality without a framing theological narrative, we sound like this because they don't understand what frames the very narrative out of which our understanding is coming. Our culture has placed human sexuality within a narrative, and that narrative is the narrative of human rights or human freedoms. They've even likened it, culture has, to the civil rights of my youth when I was a kid growing up in Mississippi and Martin Luther King was marching in the streets of my town. And they've said the civil rights era that happened there is much like the human sexuality civil rights era now. And there is a language, the terminology is things like equality, freedom of choice, consenting adults, no harm being done, discrimination, marriage rights and I was made this way. This is all a part of that cultural narrative. Our world has a narrative about human sexuality and it has delivered that narrative to your generation with great expertise through movie, song, message, advertising, marketing in every way. You have sampled that narrative every day of your life. And I'm not sure the church has the capacity to tell you into a better story than the cultural story but I'm going to try. Our world has adopted an ethic of self-sovereignty. Kenneman and Lyons have described this ethic as having six guiding principles. These are the six. Just run this through your mind. Do you believe these things? Number one, to find yourself, look within yourself. Number two, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Number three, to be fulfilled in life Pursue the things you desire most. Number four, enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. 
Number five, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And number six, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is fine. That is the narrative that you have been trained and schooled in from the day that you were born. Is this the only narrative out there? Is this really about self-will and self-sovereignty, the right to do as I please? I'm suggesting a different narrative than this one, a radical narrative, a hopeful narrative for humans. And I'll get back to these six here in just a minute. So let's begin with our Christian narrative. It begins like this, God is holy love. By holy, I mean totally other, you can't find it anywhere except God, one of a kind, the source of all holiness. God is holy. And by love, I mean self-emptying, open toward the other, making space for the other to exist, and willing to lay down life for the sake of the other. This holy love is expressed in a relationship in Scripture called Trinity. You know, God in three persons, we sing, blessed Trinity. The union of the triune God is a mystery that's so profound that we've been hammering out Trinitarian theologies for centuries now. But it is safe for Christians to say the purest form of love in the universe is what occurs in the middle of Father, Son, Spirit as they are together. I have two icons for Trinity that I use quite often. This is one of them. That circle dance of Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're whirling around. Do you ever grow up, uh, you know, holding hands with friends and singing, ring around the rosy pockets full of posy, ashes, ashes all fall down? You know, this is the kind of Trinity dance that's going on here, the circle dance. And out of Trinity, out of the love that is expressed in this self-emptying love between Father, Son, and Spirit, the whole creation is slung into existence. Flowing out of the very love of God is everything that exists. This is one of them. The other, I, I think there's one other slide there. Uh, this is a little more solid, stable one, but it still gives you that sense of how Trinity is understood as this relationship of love. Of everything that Trinity created, there is only one unique creature into which God breathes breath and declares this is in God's own image and likeness. The dignity and character of God are embodied in the human creature. No other created thing is given the relational and rational capacity to respond or respond back to God or to understand God. The human is made from dust. I, I remember the first time it was an Ash Wednesday service and my daughter and her husband brought my first grandchild to the front of the sanctuary. And she was six months old, I think. And I remember taking those black ashes and making the sign of the cross on the forehead of my six-month-old granddaughter and saying to a child, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That sense of how fragile and mortal and fleeting the human being is. Walter Brueggemann says, we're fundamentally and elementally material in origin and composition, genuinely an earth creature, subject to all the realities and limitations of materiality. But a handful of dust is by no means a human person. We scoops of dust are not self-starters. The vitality of the human depends on God's gift of breath, which is freely and graciously given, but which never becomes the property of or possession of the human person. I've been in two kind of rooms. 
I've been in the birthing rooms where my daughters were born. And I remember after they emerged from Denise's womb, and here they were, these slippery, squirmy little creatures. I remember when they took that first breath. They sucked all the mucus and fluid that was in their throat and lung, and then all of a sudden there was this, <gasps> the first breath is always in, always in. And immediately, those little babies, the color that came to them, the life and the energy that came from that first breath in. The other kind of room I've been in is the one where people take their last breath. And as I've been in those kind of rooms when people have passed, the last breath is always out. Nobody takes a deep breath and holds it and dies. We exhale and expire. The breath comes from God into these dust bins that we are, and the breath returns to the God who gave it. We are these fragile creatures. John Wesley was once asked, what is the most perfect creature? And his response was this, for what is the most perfect creature in heaven or earth in thy presence, but a void capable of being filled with thee by thee? We are created from the dust of the earth with the capacity to receive the life-giving breath of God into us. So this is how our narrative begins. A God who is holy love revealed his trinity, creating humans in his own image and likeness with the capacity of receiving our life from this God, always remembering that we are fragile and dependent. But the desiring for relationship that we have that is like the Trinity, this does not stop with our capacity for relationship with God. It extends to our relationship with each other. And I'm not talking about the sexual bond between Adam and Eve yet. They represent all humans who desire in relationship. Adam and Eve are first and foremost the biblical persons whose relational desire for an other defines the human as a relational creature. They are, the, they are the beginning of our relational quest as humans. Marriage is not the only outcome of, uh, possible in finding a rich way of living. Our sexuality is not the only thing that makes us desire one another. It is one of many human components that draws us together and becomes the basis for a connected humanity. Many theological arguments go too far in likening the love of desiring only to marriage. If this is true, then single adults cannot be renewed in the loving image of God. While Christian marriage is a sign and signal of Trinitarian love, it is not the only sign. To lovingly relate as intended by God is to be renewed in the likeness of Jesus. And every human is made capable of this, regardless of their sexual identity or gender. Therefore, when we offer our friends the saving grace of God, the primary issue is not gender transformation or sexual appetite suppression or transgendering surgery, but Christ-likeness demonstrated in the way we love God and our neighbor. This is where the Christian narrative begins. But I do have to say a word about marriage because it is a witness to the mystery of Trinitarian love. Our narrative says that God created the human, male and female, he created them, and it was not good that they were alone in this way. 
and no other material being filled the ache of that aloneness, not birds or trees or rivers, though they were made of the same stuff that Adam was. Only when presented with the woman, made of the same dust yet fully other, did the male find his aloneness addressed. Our sexuality is a type of incompleteness revealing that we were created for one another. God placed within the man and woman sexual desire for the other, and this desire was expressly felt as a yearning for someone to fill a void. I find it interesting that many people call this basic animal instinct. I beg to differ. Man and woman made in the image of God with capacity for a union that signals the mystery of the Trinity. These words are not descriptive of animals. They describe the essence of human dignity. And the narrative tells us that they're joined to one another and the two become one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, the Apostle Paul said, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. It is unmistakable throughout Scripture that the sexual union of a man and a woman in marriage is a sign and witness to the relational essence of God. But this relational capacity is not where the discussion of human sexuality ends. Marriage is about more than intimate companionship. God is a creator, a birther of life. This life flows from the center of the Trinity as an expression of holy love. And holy love brought the world into existence. God's love can be reflected in the sexual union of male and female. Marriage is sacred not only because it entails intimate uh, companionship, but also because it entails the capacity to create life, new life. Our gender marks us as incomplete. The male or female body makes no sense in itself. We are incapable of conceiving babies alone. Our bodies signal a capacity for the other and the need for the complementary person. So what does our maleness and femaleness sign to the world about the God in whose image and likeness we're made? Glad you asked. It signals that love makes room for the other. It signals that love freely empties itself for and into the other. It signals that love has within it the capacity for new creation, new creatures, babies. It signals that love is nurtured in a unity that is defenseless, naked and without shame, erotic and joyful. Our sexuality and the expression of it in marriage is meant to be a witness to the way God is, the way God loves, and the way God creates. A theology of human sexuality begins in the character of God and is a sign of holy love. So let's talk a little bit about these sexual bodies of ours. The doctrine of incarnation is central here. A God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's signal to us that life as God intended it is meant to be lived out in these bodies. Married are single bodies. God pitches a tent in a skin sack full of blood and bones. A body is where holy love is meant to be found. The body of Jesus is where we experience the life of God among us. The rich expression of 1 John reflects this in this text. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard. Get how sensual this is. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we touch with our hands. This word of life, this life was revealed. 
We've seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Jesus becomes like us, flesh, that we might be made like Him, holy. Human flesh is comprised of the dust of the earth and the life-giving breath of God. And it is made holy by the redeeming and sanctifying work of God. Here's a sentence I've got in bold. The bullseye of God's sanctifying and liberating grace is these sexual bodies of ours. To be even more direct, our sexual bodies are being built into the holy temple of God. Our incarnate physical bodies comprise the church. Think of the physicality of our practices. I, was, I just chuckle when I thought about this. We give people a bath when they become a Christian. We baptize them. I mean, we dunk them and wash them. I mean, it's just, uh, this, is, this is pretty sensual. We anoint their heads with oil, the holy massage. We lay hands on one another in ordination. We eat and drink the body of our Lord to celebrate our union with Christ. The New Testament folk practice what they call the holy kiss. We, we embrace one another in the passing of peace. These practices are sensual. Even our eschatology is rooted in the thought of a bride that is being readied for her lover on the wedding night. Our theology is physical to the core. So what went wrong? What went wrong in the culture that we're in? In a word, sin fractured the relationship between a faithful creator and us fragile creatures. God provided everything we needed for great life. But God also placed a boundary around the tree in the center of the garden and asked for our respect. We transgressed that boundary. We seized the forbidden fruit because we desired to be more than human. In our grasping, we believed that we could transcend our dustness, that we could do better than being fragile, that we could do better than being these temporary creatures. Rather than accepting our identity as the beloved creatures of God, we seized the opportunity to be equal with God. Rather than finding our ache for the other met in God, we sought to erase the ache, and thereby we became subhuman. I hate the bumper sticker that says, uh, uh, forgive me, I'm, only, I'm not perfect. Uh, you know, I've only sinned. Sin is what makes us less than human. God created us apart from that, and we have the capacity to live a life of victory over sin. We fell in that garden and we broke ourselves really bad when we did and we've never fully recovered. Back to the six statements that I showed to you earlier, let's walk through those. To find yourself, look within yourself. When we only look within ourself for guidance, we bow to self-centeredness. Just think about that for a moment. The only place I can look to find myself is inside myself. That means that I am God. That means that there is no creator out there 
who can speak into my being what I was made to be. But that's cultural understanding these days. The second one says, people should not criticize someone else's choices. Let me respond to that one. When we are unwilling to address harmful choices, we have not loved our neighbor. Do I really love my neighbor when they're making life-destroying choices and I say nothing about that? I don't think so. I think we're made to love our neighbor in a better way than that. The third statement, to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire the most. When we pursue the things we desire the most, we are certainly being human, but can we trust that our desires will lead us in a path that is for the common good of everyone? No, this is a radically self-centered way for us to live. And when enjoying ourselves, that fourth one, enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life, this is far removed from the West, uh, Westminster Catechism, which says the chief end of the human is to worship God and enjoy God forever. This suddenly takes God off the throne and says, life is getting what I want, not this sense of knowing and being known by this God and worshiping Him. Uh, the, the fifth one, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. When our beliefs are fine for, for private life, but not intended to affect society, we have truncated the truth that in Christ all things are reconciled in heaven and on earth, nor can we ever pray the Lord's Prayer again asking that God's will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. This idea that you know, just, you know, believe, everybody just believe whatever you want, you know, let's just get along, that is not what Christianity is. We pray the prayer. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And that last one, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is fine. When we, believe that, when we believe this, we suggest that God is not interested in bodies, even though he became one to redeem us. These six statements, which are the heart and soul of the value system that you have been indoctrinated into by every form of media that you have seen from the day you were born, these are radically different than the Christian narrative. And to be a Christian is to be a very different person than that. A doctrine of sin is necessary truth if we're to be restored in the image and likeness of God. In our lusting after our own self-sovereignty, we saw God as a thing that stood in our way rather than the source of our life. And once we violated God's boundaries to get what we wanted, doing the same with our fellow human beings would be easy. And thus lust was born. And one of the most powerful pictures that I've ever seen, Christopher West compares it this way. Look at this list of lust and love. I'm not sure, I'm not sure you can read it from where you are. I'll kind of walk through it very quickly here. Lust is self-gratification. Love is self-donation. Lust treats others as objects. Love treats others as subjects. Lust sees the body as something, uh, as, if, as in pornography. A body is a thing that you can use to satisfy yourself. Lo love sees a body as someone. Lust sacrifices others for oneself. Love sacrifices oneself for others. 
Lust grasps at fleeting pleasure. Love yearns for eternal joy. Lust enslaves us. Love liberates us. Lust jealously possesses. Love confidently trusts. Lust manipulates and controls. Love respects another's freedom. Lust is aimed at any pleasing outlet. Love is reserved for one. Lust ends when the pleasure ends. Love lasts through good and bad. Lust makes us feel used. Love makes us feel treasured. Lust is twisted desire. It is the image of God ache for another person, but this is bent inward on ourself instead of outward toward others. Christopher West also says we've made two failed attempts in culture at dealing with this, especially in the church, our bent sexual desire. One is the starvation diet, and that one goes like this. Your desires are bad, they will get you in trouble, learn to repress them. The other is the fast food diet. Indulge your desires as often and as cheaply as you can. But when the body is reduced to a biological unit with erotic desires, our dignity as human beings is lost. Our sexual desires are at the core of our humanity, and they signal something to us about God. Advertisers actually know this fact better than Christians do. Uh, Jamie Smith writes in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, this is one of my favorite quotes. It's a little long, but hang in there because it's great. Jamie Smith says, I think we should first recognize and admit that the marketing industry is operating with a better, more creational, more incarnational, more holistic anthropology than much of the Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, much of the Christian world. In other words, I think we must admit that the marketing industry is able to capture, form, and direct our desires precisely because they have rightly discerned that we are embodied desiring creatures whose hearts are governed by imagination. Marketers have figured out the way to our heart because they get it. They rightly understand that at root, we are erotic creatures. Creatures that are oriented primarily by love and passion and desire. In some, he says, I think Victoria is in on a secret. We are embodied desiring creatures whose hearts are governed by imagination. So what is the moral category of these desires of ours? Are they good or bad? Right or wrong? How do we assume that our desires uh, tell us what to do? Okay, I, I'm looking at my clock. I've got two minutes. I think I can get through the rest of this. Okay, in the current conversation about human sexuality, a doctrine of sin is strangely missing. To declare about our sexuality, whatever it is, God made me this way, is essentially to excuse our fallenness and to ignore our need of redemption. Now, I'm not speaking narrowly about same-sex attraction here. I'm talking about all sexual desiring. Every heterosexual person is as broken in their desiring as any homosexual person. I need redemption. My desires need transformation and sanctification. God did not make me with some kind of divine stamp of approval on my self-centered desiring. Sin scarred me. It bent me inward. It broke me. My only hope of loving as God loves 
is a deep transformation that includes forgiveness, formation, restoration, cleansing, re-imaging, and discipline. We believe that all humans are in this boat, whether they recognize it or not, and it's critically important that we stop viewing some persons as broken in light of their orientation while excusing ourselves from the categories of brokenness. To be in the world and not of the world requires that we lovingly speak truth as the body of Christ present in the world today, and it means that we exegete culture carefully in these ways. I'm going to close with just a story. Skip the last two or three pages here. College student in Nashville, Tennessee, working at the Alamo Plaza Hotel. And uh, I worked from 10.30 at night to 7 in the morning, Monday to Thursday night, to pay my way through college. Had no other, no other option. My family just didn't have any money to do that. A um, guy named Jerry worked the shift ahead of me. Jerry was a law student at Vanderbilt, and he worked the shift ahead, and then I came in and took over at 10.30. Uh, Jerry would quite often tell me, if you need me for the night transcript, the books or anything, if you see anything wrong, I'll be back in room such and such. Jerry had a practice of checking in guests and hitting on them until he could get uh, one of the uh, female guests that he had checked in to invite him back to her room. And uh, probably 50 times across a couple of years, Jerry came back to the office with a pair of women's panties. And he took them and he hung them as a conquest in the little locker that he had back in the office. And I watched him do this, I mean, over and over and over and over. And I remember the night that he came into the office, it was about 3, 3 a.m. in the morning, and he just sort of sat on the uh, couch there and he just slumped. And I said, what's up? And he said, I am so lonely. And I said, what? He said, I am so lonely. And he said, I just don't get it. He said, here you are, you're dating this really hot chick. You hadn't even had sex with her. And... You've got all these friends who come down here middle of the night to like swim in the hotel swimming pool. Management didn't know that. Uh, so he said, you've got all these friends and stuff. He said, I, I watched you. And then I, he said, I'm so lonely. He said, there's nobody that knows I'm sitting right here right now except for you. And nobody gives a rip about it. And I remembered saying to Jerry, I can tell you why you're lonely. You have practiced the art of loving and leaving, bonding and breaking, using people. You have practiced that art for so long that there is no human being that you view as a human being. You only view them as, as meat or a person who might meet your particular... Yeah, we'd take a $5 million gift at ENC right now. You only view them as a person to use in some way. And I remember Jerry walking away that night. And I began to think for the first time in my life, the radical narrative of the kind of faithful love and a life of sexual abstinence that the Christian faith had given to me had guided me to a point in a dating relationship, an engaged relationship at that time, and now I've got generations of my own daughters who every one of them looked at Denise and I and said, did you? And now we're raising our grandchildren who one day will soon be having these very conversations with us. The Christian narrative has saved and redeemed my life. I don't share a sexual ethic 
because I want to power up on anybody, because I want to have authority in anybody's life, because I want to somehow be, uh, have religious power to say this is what you have to do. I share it because in this Christian story is the salvation from the things that will destroy your life. And this community loves you enough. It is a beloved community. And it loves you enough to try to speak a radically different ethic regarding human sexuality into your life. There's a hundred other discussions to happen out of this, I know. But we're out of time this morning. So would you join me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow.